our second quarterly disaster council meeting of this fiscal year. I'd like to call the meeting to order and begin with our mayor, London Breeze. Thank you. Um, good morning. Is it morning yet or afternoon? It's, it's morning. It's still morning. <laughs> it's still morning. Um, good afternoon. I mean, good morning. <laughs> Thank you. It's Friday. Um, the days just all blend together. Um, Thank you all so much for being here. And um, as we start this meeting, I want to um, first uh, start with um, a moment of silence for the victims of the um, North, uh, Northern California fire that took place, um, one of the most devastating uh, fires in the history of our, our state. Um, a lot of lives lost, and I want to take this opportunity uh, for a moment of silence in their memory. Um, and again, thank you all so much um, for being here at this quarterly meeting. Um, I know uh, that uh, it's a meeting that um, is not necessarily regularly attended by the mayor, um, but I, I felt it was really important uh, for me to uh, begin to set the tone for what we need to uh, do in our city to address um, many of the challenges that are unanticipated um, here in San Francisco, we are used to earthquakes. We know that it's not a matter of if, but when. And so a lot of uh, resources have, and, and policy decisions have been invested in preparing our city uh, for uh, what's to come. Um, the NERT program, a great program where you can learn about disaster preparedness and how we help our fellow neighbors during a difficult time um, has been an incredible resource. Um, but as the world changes, as climate change, which is definitely real, um, begins to um, shift our focus on what we need to do as a city to better prepare for things that we had never had to prepare for in the past. In fact, uh, two years ago when we had our first heat wave, um, it was just something um, that we had never imagined could occur in a place like San Francisco, which is why when we build housing, we don't even think about adding air conditioner because it's never been uh, something that we've needed. And um, in fact, these recent fires um, have unfortunately impacted our air quality in a way um, that we had never experienced. I mean, we had never exceeded more than 50, and, and we went up in some instances to uh, closer to two, anywhere between 150 and 200. And so I think that um, as we um, approach, um, you know, these types of uh, situations, um, it's important to think about ways that we can improve upon our existing um, resources and, and, and what we already do and, and looking at what we did and how we also make better decisions about how we do things in the future moving forward. So I wanted to just talk to um, all of you about what I think is going to be important um, to prepare us for, for any situation in the future. And yes, um, we um, have had great responses with our many departments um, in terms of addressing some of the challenges, like the more recent fire and the air quality here in San Francisco. 
um, and I'm really um, glad that it did not result in any um, serious injuries or, or major uh, emergency situations, but um, we want to make sure that we're prepared for anything. And so today I'm actually going to be issuing an executive directive, and I think it might have been passed out to many of you so that um, we can uh, get to a, a better place in terms of being able to deal with um, any situation as it occurs. And so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, some of those things as a result of the directive. Um, first, um, the Department of Public Health and the Department of Emergency Management will co-lead the revision of our plan for poor air quality incidents. Um, the goal is, of course, to come up with a better strategy and to improve upon what we are already doing here in San Francisco and to make it clear exactly, you know, what our plan of action is as it relates to that particular issue. Um, the second um, thing uh, would be the Department of Emergency Management, um, headed by Mary Ellen Carroll, uh, will uh, chair a, a task force to provide recommendations on uh, definition, effectiveness, benefit, location of facilities that can be utilized for uh, public respite during poor air, air quality events and other weather related events. So um, when we first had the heat wave a couple of years ago, um, we didn't immediately open up the libraries and rec centers um, right away. And I do think that when we know or anticipate something of uh, this magnitude, especially with re regards to poor air quality, um, it's important to just be prepared and to use all the resources that we have at our disposal. Um, and part of what we want to do is develop a task force so that we can immediately jump into action um, when any of this occurs. Um, the task force will uh, also include all of the city departments that are usually actively engaged in this, including the Human Service Agency, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, Recreation and Park Department, and the San Francisco Public Library. Um, the third thing, D, uh, Department of Emergency Management will establish a roster of civilian multi-agency personnel of various disciplines that can be pre-positioned or rapidly deployed to areas in anticipation of uh, the um, widespread impacts and support uh, with recovery efforts. So um, it doesn't necessarily um, need to be limited to one specific person or one specific department. Our goal is to utilize uh, resources in all of our different departments um, to deploy assistance when necessary. Um, and, and I think the, the plan is to uh, make sure, um, just like in the case of NERT, for example, and having a number of people who are NERT certified, we know um, who they are, we know that they uh, can be outreach to, and I think part of what we want to do is be able to um, utilize and do the same thing here um, with deployment of people to assist in uh, making sure that we're covering the entire city. Um, the fourth thing, uh, DEM and the Department of Public uh, Health will work with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District and the Bay Area cities and counties to develop consistent and, and multilingual educational messaging and recommendations. The information uh, will also be accessible to people with disabilities. So I think communication is important. Um, in fact, during this last um, uh, situation with the fire, 
Um, we used a number of different methods to communicate to people to basically stay indoors, which is was the best option we had available in terms of trying to uh, keep people safe and healthy um, during that difficult time. And we want to make sure um, that others um, who may not necessarily understand the English messages that we're you know, providing it in multiple language to reach out to that community, as well as those individuals with disabilities and our senior community. Um, so we want to improve upon our communication strategies. Um, uh, the, the fact is we all know that not everyone is on the internet and not everyone is on Twitter and not everyone is using social media. Um, so I want to make sure that we are reaching out to many of our vulnerable populations, especially um, during a situation that could impact their health. Um, so our, our city plans and prepares for emergencies year-round with workshops and trainings and, and other things that we do. And I think it's going to be important to make sure that we are not only prepared as leaders of this city, but we need to make sure that the people who work in our departments are prepared, that we are um, working to provide uh, preparedness in our different departments with the employees of the city. We are outreaching to members of the public um, and encouraging them to potentially participate in our NERT programs and, and things that we offer because ultimately um, if there is a major disaster here in San Francisco, um, we are not going to necessarily have you know, the uh, amount of personnel that we need to cover the entire city, which means we're all going to have to look out for one another. We all are going to have to be prepared and roll up our sleeves and really um, do what's necessary to make sure that, um, especially if there is a major earthquake um, in our city, that we're taking care of one another. And so uh, we have work to do, and I'm excited about the opportunities that um, are before us. We have a chance um, that while there isn't a situation that is occurring as we speak, we have a chance to be prepared uh, for anything. A, a natural disaster, you know, a fire that impacts air quality, a heat wave, or anything of that nature. And I hope we never get to a point where we have to deal with a snowstorm since it never snows in San Francisco. But you never know. <laughs> because climate change is real, and uh, it's important to make sure that we are prepared for everything, and the work that you do here is important in getting our city ready. And that's why I want to make sure um, that by moving forward with this directive, we have a plan of action that is clear um, and provides really great communication uh, to folks in our city um, so that we are all better prepared to address any challenge that comes our way. So I want to thank all of you for being here, and I also want to um, really thank and appreciate our first responders um, who are always on the front line um, dealing with some of the most challenging of circumstances um, that exist not only in San Francisco, but um, I know that uh, many of our firefighter and police officers and, and other folks um, assist, uh, assisted this fire, um, were, were there on the front lines and helping with recovery efforts and a number of other uh, challenges that exist. And so I'm really proud of the city and the work that we've done to move forward in, you know, just organizing 
um, and making sure San Francisco is prepared, but also supporting our neighboring counties, um, including places in Northern and Southern California. So thank you for your work. And uh, with that, I'll uh, turn it back over to uh, Mary Ellen. Thank you, Mayor. Thank or do I turn it over to you? Okay. One of these people. <laughs> Thank you, Mayor Breed, um, for your leadership and really your commitment to a prepared and resilient San Francisco. Um, you know, in today's meeting, we're excited to, we have several presentations for you. Um, we're excited to show you examples of the public agencies and communities and businesses coming together to meet challenges um, that we faced recently. With the fires raging through our state, San Francisco actually sent 80, almost 80 folks up to Butte County. Uh, we sent 79 sworn and unsworn and civilian personnel and 11 fire engines um, to provide relief to our neighbors and we'll provide you with a little more detail about that. Um, as we, we learn from every incident that happens to us, we are in a constant state of quality improvement and Lately, the last few years, we have experienced incidents that were unprecedented and that we didn't necessarily anticipate. The, the heat wave was one of them, and this sustained, almost 13 days of sustained unhealthy air was something that we really, we have, we planned for um, air quality, but we did not necessarily anticipate 13 days. And so that's part of the directive we will be um, re revising our plan um, and working with health uh, to have more specific plans for that. Um, frankly, we could have had a heat wave and an air quality event, which would make it even, because those things tend to happen in the same season. So we have to be flexible and dynamic um, when it comes to emergencies, and we're finding that out, particularly with natural disasters and weather events. Who knows what we're gonna anticipate? Hopefully not snow, but it did, it did shut down I-5 yesterday, I think, from snow, so you never know. Um, we also um, want to be able to um, come together for more regular emergencies here, and uh, the Department of Emergency Management ho ho excuse me, hosts the Healthy Streets Operations Center, which um, is dealing with our day-to-day -day emergency of uh, homelessness and, and health issues in the street. And so that helps us also to be um, prepared for any other disaster that comes along. So I want to thank everyone for being here. Thank you for your service and your commitment. We work with many of you, I can see here in the audience, and uh, appreciate your attendance today. Um, our next, so we'll move right into the meeting. Our first uh, report out is going to be around emergency response, and we are going to be focusing on the um, unhealthy air quality event, the mutual aid that the city provided, and we will also have a report out from the healthy, from HSOC, Healthy Streets Operations Center. So um, I'm going to introduce, uh, let's see, who's first? I'm sorry. Um, we're going to start with uh, Dr. Tomas Aragon from the Department of Public Health, who will talk to us about the poor air quality emergency. Good morning, everyone. First, I want to just introduce Dr. Jan Gurley, who's sitting behind me. She's the new uh, Director of um, Public Health Emergency Preparedness and Response for the Department of Public Health, and she's part of our division. 
So when I'm handing out, there's a, there's a one-page handout that, I'm, uh, that you will be getting that will summarize the key issues that I'm going to talk about. So when we talk about air, air quality, we, we talk about the AQI or the air quality index. And with the air quality index, it actually represents, it represents five potential um, what are called criteria air pollutants. And whichever one is worse, that's actually what, that's what's actually what the API uh, represents. So when the API is up, it doesn't tell you which, which one of those constituents is actually up. So let me, um, the things that we, the, we track are ozone, particulate matter, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen dioxide. The key ones for health are um, ozone and particulate matter. And that's why in the summer when the ozone goes up, that's why you have spare the air, don't drive. <laughs> In the winter, when particulates go up, you have the spare the air and don't burn uh, wood. And so sometimes you will see conflicting things. So in the summer, there may be a fire, but there might not be a spare the air alert because the ozone is fine. And that's why sometimes you'll see conflicting messages, and it's important for us to understand how that, how that works. So for what we know about human health, the particulates... Um, are the ones that we're most concerned about, and that's what happens with the wildfires. You can see there a depiction there in that figure. Um, you can see a, a strand of hair, and you can see what you can see those little blue dots that represents particulate matter of 10 microns. And the ones that we're most concerned about are the particulate matters that are 2.5 microns or smaller. Those are very, they're so small that you can, deep, you can breathe them deep into your lung all the way down to your alveoli, and that's where it's going to have the, the worst health effects. And so that's a, a good depiction of that. The second thing to notice here is if you go down to the graph, this actually represents our air quality index over 2017 and 2018 from July 1st to July 30th. The red, the red line represents 2017, and the highest that we actually peaked during 2017 was actually, was actually red. And, and if you look at the purple, the purple was 2018. And you can see there in November when we had the, when we had the elevation. And so the highest in theory that, we, that this is measured to is an AQI of, five, of, of 500. So we got into, we got into, the, we got into the purple. Um, and it was, at, it was at, at that time that schools in the Bay Area decided to, to close for that, for that Friday. But anyway, it gives you an idea of the, of, the, of, the of the variability. And you can go back and look at, for example, last year, September, around Labor Day, when we had the heat wave, you can see that there was actually some poor air quality happening at the same time as uh, Mary Ellen Carroll had, had um, commented on. On the backhand side, um, it's just a summary of key points. Um, if folks want to look at this in more detail, I just review the, the AQI here focusing just on PM 2.5. You can actually see the actual concentrations and then you can see the AQI that's actually calculated from the actual concentrations and the different colors, and the different categories. And I'm not going to go over. I'm not going to go over that. That was um, there was a lot of education that went uh, went that was distributed around that. I want to point out a, a few key things. So it says here, wildfire smoke contains carbon monoxide, water vapor, um, carbon dioxide, particulate matter, complex hydrocarbons, nitrogen oxides, trace mil minerals, and thousands of other compounds. So wood smoke contains many of the same toxicants and carcinogenic substances that's in cigarette smoke, including benzene, benzopyrene, and these um, um, other, other chemicals. So what we know from air pollution is that the PM2.5 
absolutely has an impact at the population level. So everyday pollution impacts both all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, and respiratory and respiratory morbidity. That, that's sort of the baseline. We know that from around the world. Wildfires is a little bit different. In wildfires, what they're seeing is, is that slight ticks, um, upticks in all-cause mortality, respiratory, um, uh, it, it, respiratory morbidity, so people problems with um, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pneumonia, but right now they're not, seeing, they're not seeing increases in cardiovascular mortality, so not the heart. So there is a difference between wildfire smoke and um, typical air pollution that we're accustomed to. There's a lot of research that's being down, done, done. We don't know what the long-term effects are when these particulates get down deep into your lung. We don't know how the immune system um, is going to react in terms of long term. So those are the two things I want to point out. And then the last thing I want to point out is at the very bottom, you're going to be seeing you're going to be seeing the public health community becoming a little bit more supportive of uh, um, respirator use in the, in the future. So I have a one-page handout here from the California Department of Public Health just summarizing issues around the N95 respirators because that's probably the biggest thing that we deal with in terms of questions. And there, under exposure reduction, there are, there are common things that are done, including the discussion of respirators. So that's what I was going to cover for the a, uh, covering um, AQI. And what I want to do was is to leave it open for any questions. Um, Dr. Aragon, I wanted to um, um, ask you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, just really um, some of the details around the mask and okay. what, what the mask actually they actually do to help people and also what they could potentially do to harm people who, you know, some of the things that you discussed when we had our press conference. Okay. Um, just because, and, and, and also, yeah. um, I'd like us to just really try and help um, educate the mm -hmm. public on the use of masks as it relates to poor air quality uh, for the purposes of making sure that everyone understands the details around that. Okay. So the first thing to, so one of the first things we want to learn is that in the future, we're all going to call them respirators because <laughs> people confuse them with masks. They confuse them with surgical masks. And so they're called respirators because what you're trying to do is you're trying to filter air through, through the respirator. And to do that, you have to have a tight fit on your face. And through negative pressure, you're filtering air through, through the respirator. And that means that you're actually working your body to do this. So most of what we do around these N95 or N100 respirators really comes out of the medical setting where we're trying to prevent um, clinicians from getting exposed to infectious diseases. And because we know that a person, to wear a respirator, you have to be healthy. You have to have, you, you, because it's, it takes a lot of work to, to wear them. And so in the medical setting, people actually get a, a medical evaluation, they get fit tested, and they make sure that it actually works. Because if it's not fit tested, it's probably, it's probably not going to work. And that's generally the concern that we have when people in the community are using them, is that they don't realize that actually if you have underlying lung disease, heart disease, you may actually be creating a bur physiologic burden on your body when you're, when you're generating this negative pressure to filter air through the respirator. And so that's why people need, meet people need to know. And one of the bottom line messages that we came up, we, we sort of realize is that people are going to use them. So we've, public health is realizing that we have to educate folks um, to let them know what the concerns are. And at the end of the day is to make sure if, this, if wearing this makes you uncomfortable, take it off. Don't continue to wear something that's causing, that's that's causing a burden on you to, to breathe. 
The other, the other major concern that we have is really for the small children, because some parents may decide they may decide to put something on the child, and 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 the child is not going to say, "Mom, I'm not feeling comfortable," or "Dad, I'm not feeling comfortable," and so we don't want to. We don't want to. We want to. We sort of need to get the message out there. Because I, my wife's a teacher. She teaches first grade. Sure enough, the kids were coming to school with their, with their respirators that their parents got them. So I think next time the the. What last thing I want to mention is that most of what we know comes out of from what we do in medical practice and in public health we're realizing that in the in public health the public is going to be using them no matter what we say. So we're going to have to really come up with common sense um, recommendations to make sure that they're used, they're used safely and then talk about um, that we have a sufficient supply so that we can make sure that people who have to be outdoors and can wear them safely have access to them. Any, any questions? I have a comment. Um, I'm glad that it's included here, how to select and use the respirator, because I noticed there's such a range. Oh, sorry about that. Apologies. Uh, Elaine Forbes-Port, I'm very pleased to see this select and correctly use a respirator because I noticed with my own employees and with seeing the public, there's such a range of product out there uh, from you know, a full, uh, full, uh, full scale respirator to a dust mask, and it was all over the map in terms of what were what people were utilizing. And it's very good that we'll have this direction going forward. So, so thank you for that. NIOSH certified, and in fact, people's disaster kits should actually have them anyway. Because if there's an earthquake, some, if you're going to be cleaning around where there's a lot of small particles, you're going to want to have access to them anyway. So people should have them. Great, and Dr. Aragon and I look forward to working together and getting these uh, specific directions out for the Likewise. city and the public. Okay, if there's no more questions, we're gonna move on to the next slide, which is, I wanted to make sure that's what it was, emergency, <laughs> emergency management and mutual aid. Um, again, we're gonna get into a little more detail about our deployment from the city we deployed um, from eight or more different departments, including the fire department. Um, it was it was a very um, it was a very intense deployment for everyone who was there. Um, I was there last Friday, um, and it I've been to other fires for recovery deployment. I've never seen anything like it. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to Mike Dayton, who led the first team, that, the first non-fire team to go up, and, and he'll talk a little bit about the experience, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to fire. All right. Well, well thanks, Director Carroll. And just first, I, I just wanted to thank the mayor and you for being so proactive and so engaged and you know, providing us the opportunity. I also just wanted to acknowledge the people that also deployed, um, Andrea, Nubia, uh, Nick, Francis, if you could stand up. If you were part of the deployment, I'd appreciate that. And um, Chief Cochran, do you mind if you uh, talk about the fire mutual aid first, and then I'll go into the EOC? Sure. Thanks, yeah. Chief. Good morning. Uh, Mike Cochran, Homeland Security, San Francisco Fire. Uh, San Francisco Fire Department's in a large amount of resources. Uh, we're a unique department that we have that many personnel. Total of 39 personnel, nine engines, three strike team leaders, 
Uh, that deployment ranged from 10 to 15 days. Uh, unfortunately for our members, a lot of it was recovery, which we do, but not at that level. So the Chief of Department is also offering uh, debriefings for our members, but uh, our members performed valiantly, and uh, we were happy to assist. All right, well, thank you, Chief. Um, there are some of the uh, emergency managers that assisted at the Emergency Operations Center. So, so we had the opportunity to arrive on the ground on Monday on Veterans Day. The fire started on Thursday. And just to give you a sense of what it was like for the Town of Paradise, Town of Paradise probably has uh, 50 employees that are non-sworn, annual budget of $12 million a year. They had about $1 million in the bank. so. So we were immediately walking in with the town manager and the assistant town manager. The assistant town manager's house had, had burned down, <coughs> two young kids. So, so on top of the devastation that they were dealing with in the town, it was really those, those human concerns about, you know, where are my kids going to end up going to school? Um, you know, I haven't heard back from my insurance company. How, how are we ever going to rebuild the, of a town that's just been you know, basically 95% of the town had been destroyed by the fire. So, so rightfully so, they were really shell-shocked, and I had the opportunity to work very closely with the town manager right off the bat, and one of the first meetings that we got pulled into on a Monday was recovery. So that was one of the big takeaways for me is recovery is going to happen immediately. They're not going to wait for us to start, and when I say they, it's the California Office of Emergency Services and FEMA, those recovery task forces start right away immediately after an event of this magnitude. So, so the, the more pre-planning, and I'm, I'm glad we're working so closely with Brian and, and Jennifer and their group on the recovery framework, but that's really going to behoove our recovery and get us, you know, not distract us in the response phase because we're still, even though the fire had burned through paradise, you know, in almost one day on Thursday, and we were there on Monday, there was still risk of trees falling down. There was utility crews on the ground. And so the, big, the second biggest takeaway I had was just the massive amount of mutual aid that is going to be required here. And I know I've sounded like a broken record to you know, our team on mutual aid, but they had over 4,000 local firefighters that responded to this event. They had over three up, upwards of 3,000 utility workers, the majority being PG&E, but also Comcast and AT&T. Um, uh, traditionally, on these large-scale fires like this, it's the CAL FIRE incident management team that really organizes the incident command post and starts focusing in on the repopulation efforts and making sure that the utility restoration work is in alignment with the incident commander. So, so those are issues we'll have to plan for as well, and we do. So we're going to be emphasizing those in our training and exercise programs. You, you'll see a lot of that as the build-up to Upper Center and also to Fleet Week. Um, and th the other big takeaway for me was just public information. Uh, literally, the one IT person at the town of Paradise had to flee town hall by ripping the server out of the wall. So they didn't have access to their own email system for nearly a week. So they had no way to communicate with the public. So when Francis arrived from our team um, and joined a great team from Sonoma and Santa Rosa, but they really were able to get public information out very quickly and establish you know, emails or, or alternative emails for the town. Uh, but it, right away, you saw issues pop up with temporary shelters. I mean, you had a lot of uh, goodwill in the community. Some of it 
you know, it may have been a little bit misdirected where they set up a shelter at the Walmart and encouraged anybody with skills and, you know, warm heart to come down and help out. That, that really wasn't part of the coordinating sheltering effort that should take place or will take place here. Um, and then another, just the last takeaway is the Disaster Recovery Center. Uh, when we were there on Monday, the, the president hadn't, you know, declared it a major disaster declaration and the key point there is once the president declares a major disaster, then that frees up FEMA to participate in a local recovery center. So that the timing of that is actually very tangible benefit for the citizens that will need to apply for, for FEMA assistance. So that was one of our first priorities. But uh, again, as Director Carroll said, we were essentially the, the EOC, the four team members that got up there for the first week and kind of just a calming reassurance, but uh, with that, I'll turn it over to, you know, a video that we have for Director Carroll's visit there. San Francisco was part, we were one of the first teams that showed up here um, through the state mutual aid system request. And we were able to come and help the town of Paradise set up their emergency operations center. We provided help in the area of logistics, planning, operations, public information, and animal care and control. All of these areas are ones that are really very much needed in the beginning of the response and continue to be. The entire town of Paradise was affected by this tragedy and many of the employees um, for the town had lost everything. They were still coming to work, um, but for us to be able to come and help them set up the structure that they would need for response was, I think, a critical response that was, that was very helpful to the town. Everyone who comes to these deployments um, is there to support one another, whether they're the people from the local jurisdiction or people coming from different areas, um, different parts of the state, whatever that may be. And I think being prepared, understanding what it is you're going to be asked to do and being flexible, understanding you may be asked to do something different, and that mindset will really help you. Along the way, I think also being prepared in um, bringing equipment that you need self-sustaining so that you're not relying on the area that you're deploying to to support you. Those things will really help you in the long run. What we do is provide resources for the field who may be lacking equipment. For instance, we've been looking for backhoes or for um, chainsaws. There's a lot of tree removal, so today we've been concentrating on um, getting together contracts for arborists and tree removal services. Logistics section is working closely with finance to um, make sure that we are creating a strong paper trail for cost recovery so that the area can get as much reimbursement from the federal government as possible. When San Francisco provides mutual aid, we provide important humanitarian assistance to our neighbors and other jurisdictions within the state. We learned so much as a city, but also individually. It really builds our capacity to uh, respond every time we send a staff person out. I'm really 
pleased that we were able to send uh, employees from the Department of Emergency Management, the General Services Agency, Animal Care and Control, the Public Utilities Commission, and of course our firefighters who have been here from the start. There's few disasters that any jurisdiction can really handle on their own and certainly nothing like the scope of what we're seeing here. So I can't stress enough how important it is for us to um, to be uh, prepared and available to deploy to help our neighbors throughout the state when it's needed. To the communities that have been affected here, the city of Paradise, uh, the entire county of Butte, um, you should just know that the city of San Francisco is with you and we'll do whatever we can to support. And as we saw, I saw today, the state and feds, FEMA, everybody is here. Um, this is a beautiful place, even surrounded by ashes and uh, you, we have such a sense of how strong this community is and uh, just know that we're with you. Thank you. Um, as the woman in the video was saying, uh, <laughs> There, there really is no better learning than to be part of an actual response. And so while the benefit, obviously, the humanitarian action that we do to help is so critical, um, we, are, we have double benefit by bringing that back here, and the people of San Francisco benefit from that too as we build our capacity and our bench. And I'm, I'm grateful to the mayor um, that one of the direction, directives, Directive 4, I believe, um, is going to really help us move toward putting these multidisciplinary um, teams together so that we will be more ready and can go when needed. And unfortunately, in California, I'm afraid that those opportunities are, are not going to be um, few and far between. So um, one of the, when I was there last Friday, um, the, the animal care and control um, function was still going strong. It was probably the biggest part of their actual on-the-ground response. It was very overwhelming. Um, and so we have uh, Diana here today from Animal Care and Control who deployed, and she's going to speak to us a little bit about that. So can you hear me if I just no, use the mic? No, you need to use the mic. First, I want to say um, I go to Paradise uh, one weekend out of every year and have with my family for the last 20 years. It is near and dear to my heart. Um, and Virginia Donahue, our director at ACC, obliged me and allowed me to pull together a team to respond and allowed me to respond myself, which was fabulous. Um, one of the first things that we did was we sent uh, people over to our folks over to get dogs. So we got 10 fire dogs, um, some of them with medical issues. We provided the vet care. We provided the foster care for them. We still have eight of them. They're not being adopted out. We're trying to find their owners. Um, this is the reunification of our, one of the first dogs with its owner, um, a nonprofit organization culled through all of the animal records to put them together. And, uh, and then they drove him from Butte County all the way to ACC to pick him up. Are my other pictures in here? Do you know? 
All right, great. Um, so a couple of things I can tell you. We ended up sending uh, 11 ACC um, employees, our vet, our animal uh, keepers, um, the husbandry folks, uh, animal care officers, and our bureaucrat over to assist with this. There were 1,800 animals that originally in the, in the shelter. There's still 1,400 now. So it's, it's tremendous. How many of you have animals here in the room? And, and they're part of your family, right? And in our disasters, we must plan for these animals because people will not leave without them. They won't go into shelters without them. Um, it, it's critical. Uh, and it's, um, it's chaotic. It's difficult. We put up in Butte County, we created the shelter space that is there for those 1,800 animals um, with, out of nothing. Um, so we took old abandoned buildings, we took a portion of the airport, um, and we just created what didn't exist. We have to keep them disease free, we have to keep them from fighting. These are really fearful animals that are normally uh, roaming free there. Of the, of the animals that we took in, only one of them was fixed. Really? Yes. It's a different. It's a different world. It's the country. Yeah. It's the country in a different in, in a different mindset than necessarily ours. Um, so we have to go in and we have to be flexible, and we have to figure out how to make it work. Um, we have we we've learned a ton from from these experiences and the recent fires um, for San Francisco in terms of how it is we'll um, work with animals in our own shelters. Thank you so much. Thanks, Diana. Um, our, next, our next agenda item uh, is number four around emergency preparedness, where we were going to give the Fleet Week report. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where's Commander Lazar? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we move on to four, please, Healthy Streets Operations Center report out. Thank you. Yes. Can I do this? Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'll just briefly speak about our effort here in San Francisco to address our homelessness issue. Back in January, we opened up the Healthy Streets Operations Center with the thought being that instead of a conference call or a meeting every other day, why don't we all get in the same room and set up an emergency command post type atmosphere at the Department of Emergency Management, thank you for hosting all these months, along with the Department of Public Health, the Department of Public Works, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, 311, the Controller's Office, we recently added Rec and Park, thank you very much, uh, MTA, soon to be a partner in the Sheriff's Department. With really that collaborative spirit in terms of thinking through minute by minute, hour by mi hour, how we're going to deal at first with the encampments uh, as you may know, we had around 1,200 encampments in San Francisco two years ago. So how do we chip away at that? And so for the last year, we've been chipping away at that. Those numbers are below 400 at this point. And then the collaborative effort of really getting people into the navigation center, having HOT respond out with us as a team effort to get people into shelter and other services, and really to take 311, the great work that's done by 311, and streamline all those 1,500 calls per week into one lane into, on one screen at the Healthy Streets Operations Center it equates to about 240 calls a day and to really just work at being responsive, 
responding to those complaints. We have staff that calls back our, our citizens, our community now, and says, how can we, uh, this is what we're doing. We're sorry about the, the, the delay, or here are the resources we want to provide you, or just to let the public know what we're doing. Um, and so that work on encampment, encampments ha has evolved. And now in the last couple months, and I must back up and say that we started out 7 to 3, Monday through Friday, uh, thanks to our mayor, our chief, and, and our acting assistant chief, Mike Redman, who's here today. We expanded in July, where we're now seven days a week, 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., where we're staffed and monitoring calls citywide and being proactive. But this has evolved now into really dealing with individuals, mental illness, and substance abuse individuals. And so we started, we went from HSOC, and now we have a component of that we call HSIP, the Healthy Streets Intervention Program, where police officers in partnership with public health and the HOT team are looking, driving around the city looking for drug-addicted individuals and getting them into a police car or into a vehicle and taking them to uh, the adult probation cask or TAP or door or sobering center, et cetera. And that's really taking it to a whole new level. So we're excited. We're almost one year into this. And uh, it continues to evolve. We continue to think about how we can do things better. To Director Carroll's point, you know, if for some, uh, under some unforeseen circumstance, there is a disaster, we already have a command post stood up seven days a week that just basically can convert into that disaster, you know, command post. So we're happy about that. And then the last thing I'd like to say is that a lot of agencies, um, a little bragging point, a lot of agencies throughout the country have inquired about what we're doing here in San Francisco. We have a fairly large contingent from Los Angeles coming up on December 17th. They want to replicate what we're doing in San Francisco down there. Uh, so we as a city have a lot to be proud of, and um, I look forward to reporting out a year from now on future successes of HSOC. So thank you very much. Thank you, Commander Lazar, and thank you for your leadership at the HSOC. Um, so now we will move on to number four. Uh, we were planning to um, report out on Fleet Week, but I would like to call for a motion to defer that Fleet Week report um, just due to time um, until the March 2019 Disaster Council meeting. We thought it was important to focus on the actual responses that we've had over the last few months. So, so moved. Thank you. Second. Second. All, all in favor? Thank you. Moving on, number five, we are, I'm gonna turn this over to Department of Technology to present on pr priority networks testing. And we've got Nina and Michelle. Yes, please use the mic. There we go. Uh, so we worked hand in hand with the Department of Technology on this upcoming testing. I just want to say that every I've, we've worked with every department here in the room to improve radio communications. We're in the midst of an $80 million program to upgrade our radio system. And that's critically important, but even more so in looking at responding to these events is, is these devices. And, and these devices and their ability to work in an emergency. And so the Department of Technology um, and the Department of Emergency Management and, and several other departments uh, have, un, have started testing these uh, priority networks. So essentially, uh, 
you know, as you know, with the radio systems, all of our sites are on battery backup. They're on generator power. Only first responders use these networks. But these commercial networks don't have the same robustness. Uh, but we have talked with the federal government. We have been working many, many years to push the federal government to make these these networks more reliable. And there are uh, they are also offering priority and preemption capabilities for first responders, and that's really what we are interested in in and testing. And so we did a partnership with both AT&T and Verizon. AT&T offers their service called FirstNet. We have about 3,000 police department users using that network. Uh, and also uh, Verizon, because of the AT&T and the push to build out FirstNet, Verizon is actually now offering priority broadband services for the fire, and our fire department has over 1,000 of their devices on that network. So um, bottom line up front, we tested these uh, networks in high-dense uh, usage uh, events, including the Pride Parade and Fleet Week. Uh, we have seen that we need to continue to work with our partners in the, in the carrier space to improve these networks. Um, and I'm going to let, actually, Nina dive into some of those testing results. Okay, great. Uh, I'll keep it short. What you see here is a screenshot of uh, an app that you yourself can get on the App Store. It's called InPerf, and I recommend you go home and test your own residential network to really understand um, how well that performs. And when it doesn't, you call your carrier and get your money back. Um, so the testing teams, as we spoke, were police department, fire, DEM, and DT, and we work closely with DEM often on various projects. We had five testing events all throughout the year. Um, the networks tested were FirstNet and AT&T, which AT&T owns those two networks, commercial and priority, and Verizon Mobile Broadband Priority Service and Verizon's commercial network. Um, the devices are the iPhone and the Samsung Galaxy S8. It also, these, all, these networks require an investment in um, modern devices too, so that's an additional cost that you'll have to be um, aware of. Um, applications tested, in-perf, speed, and the FCC bandwidth test. Why that's important is because the FCC has minimum standards for download and upload. So you can see here, download is the, the speed at which something is downloaded, upload is the speed at which um, packets are uploaded on the network. Latency measures the delay in the network. Browsing, can you load a web page? Can you load multiple web pages? And streaming, can you stream video? Many of these applications in the public safety space um, such as Periscope, have streaming video. So that becomes important. So you don't want disjointed video. Additionally, if you're tied into um, cameras, security cameras, this can become important. Another test is coverage. So disasters have no borders, so coverage becomes important. And you can see the green, that's the coverage. So it's over 98%, but there are some red gaps. And this is the kind of data that we need to push the carriers to cover the gaps. Um, obvious, uh, however, I will tell you that individual user experience is not where it needs to be with these, um, with these networks. Um, the, the commute corridors, have no coverage. Um, in the surrounding Bay Area, there's no coverage. So again, you know, disasters have no borders, so we need them to be fully blanketed in green. Right, the outcome of tests. So highly variable, um, inconsistent. Uh, we have speeds that range in the test data 
which I have a tester here, Vanu, who works for the Chief Cybersecurity Officer. And they're available for you to look at, um, especially if you're thinking of switching over. Uh, and Mary Ellen, Carol, and Linda Jarrell, the director of the Department of Technology, have these test results if you're really interested. Um, cell on wheels. Um, oftentimes, the carriers provide the cell on wheels to big events to ensure that the um, people at the events can have a good experience with Instagram and social media but it starts to skew the results of the priority networks. Okay, yep. So here's our recommendations. We are on a slow your roll campaign. Be a late adopter to these priority networks. You will not gain any more efficiency, any more speed on them. Um, cost evaluations, these are subsidized networks uh, by the state and the feds, um, so you should be receiving uh, cheaper costs for those of you who are already shifted. Um, we'll test again when the new Band 14 class, Band 14 is the super highway for public safety across the country. San Jose has theirs built. We should be next. Um, but again, recommend slow the roll. Just wait until everything's built out. Um, yeah. And I believe, okay, is there any questions or? I've been told to hurry up, so that's why I'm. <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to go on to uh, number item number six, resilient. Oh yes. Uh, we're going to do public comment at the at the end. Okay. Okay. You have time. You ready? Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, I'm Nancy Werfel. At your June 15th meeting, I brought to the council's attention that there was no comprehensive plan and no timeline for extending the original auxiliary water system supply to all the existing residential neighborhoods that are currently underserved. I also asked that you commit to prioritizing this infrastructure for completion, but I do not see any evidence that anyone in the council has actually understood that we need unlimited water supplies to fight post-earthquake fires and is willing to ensure that we have an unlimited water supply citywide. Items three, four, and five on your agenda that we've just heard um, are to report on emergency response, preparedness, and planning. In my opinions, there's no greater emergency to San Francisco than a major earthquake and there is no greater need than putting out the post-earthquake fires. Therefore, our preparedness must require that we access, have access to unlimited amounts of water with the auxiliary water system of pipes and hydrants to distribute this non-potable water to all of the city neighborhoods and I am deeply concerned that we are not doing the proper planning that will avert fiery disaster by requiring the expansion of the AWSS with salt water to be financed and built now. Mr. Dudiet, a retired member of the fire department, can better explain the need for this infrastructure. Uh, 
The San Francisco PUC has decided to use our locally stored drinking water at the Sunset Reservoir as the primary water source for firefighting for the entire Richmond and Sunset districts. This is a very bad plan since the reservoir's water is required by state water code to be shared in an emergency with 27 peninsula cities who jointly own this water. Then the pro there's a problem that there's not enough potable water to fight all of the expected simultaneous fires from broken gas lines, which is why we need to have a pump station at the ocean. And don't forget that the south basin of Sunset Reservoir also is supposed to supply our drinking water, but this has not been seismically reinforced, so who knows if it's going to survive the shaking or whether the inundation from its contacts will hit the rest of the sunset. Please put a special item on your next agenda to discuss the city's complete plan for saving every neighborhood from fire after a major earthquake with presentations from the Department of Emergency Management from the San Francisco PUC and the San Francisco Fire Department and that each one will discuss what each is doing to ensure that redundant, seismically resistant, high pressure pipes and hydrants are installed with identified sources of salt water or non-potable water to suppress fires and with alternative backup systems to ensure firefighting capability. If the council does not have this item on its next agenda, then we must have, we, then we have no choice but to conclude the city is ignoring its responsibility to be prepared to fight fires after the next big earthquake. Okay. Thank you for Thank your you. consideration. Good morning. My name is Tom Dudier. I'm a re retired assistant deputy chief from the San Francisco Fire Department. I have 39 years of public service with the city of San Francisco. Situated directly above the junction of the North American and Pacific tectonic plates, San Francisco is resting on a seismic time bomb. As members of the Disaster Council, you must be aware that up to 80% of the destruction following the next Great Bay Area earthquake will be caused by the firestorms that will develop in the absence of adequate emergency water supplies for firefighting. Since assuming responsibility for the city's auxiliary water supply hydrant system from the SFFD in 2010, the SFPUC has taken a dangerous path in promoting the use of our supply of drinking water to fight post-earthquake fires instead of using the inexhaustible supply of seawater, which this high-pressure hydrant system currently uses and which is readily available on three sides of the city. Contrary to what the PUC has stated, our limited supply of drinking water will be inadequate for fighting the firestorms that will occur in our 15 currently unprotected neighborhoods. It is not commonly known, although Ms. Werfel just alerted you to this, that of the 79% of all the city's drinking water that is stored in the three terminal reservoirs, the state water code mandates that during a regional disaster, as much as two-thirds of it will have to be, quote, shared equitably with the 27 peninsula cities that are our wholesale water customers. It is of the greatest importance that the members of the Disaster Council understand that following the next big earthquake, the only thing that will save San Francisco from once again being destroyed by firestorms will be our unlimited supply of seawater and a high-pressure hydrant system extended to all neighborhoods of the city. Nothing that the SFPUC is currently willing to provide will enable the SFFD to successfully combat post-earthquake fires and save the city, its residents, and by the way, the pension of every city employee from destruction. Yes, please don't forget that if the city's tax base is destroyed, our pensions will be gone as well, and that includes mine. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. 
We will move on to the presentation from the Office of Capital Planning and Resilience. Okay, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Brian Strong, the Chief Resilience Officer and Director of the Office of Resilience and Capital Planning in the City Administrator's Office. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of these presentations were put together before, before the campfire, before we knew this was happening, and it, it's, it, they all seem to apply, you know, almost directly to the experiences there. And, you know, after the, the, the lifelines, I'm sorry, I'll go back to this. The lifelines committee was actually put together after Hurricane Katrina that affected New Orleans and former city, admini or city administrator at the time, Ed Lee, put together a group of utility providers to sort of work out and lifeline providers to sort of discuss how we're going to recover, how we're going to get services up and running, how we're going to work together um, from a major event. And for us, it's earthquake. For New Orleans, it was a hurricane. Um, but really, you know, this gets to the heart of, of recovery. Um, you know, the, the project goal that we're talking about here is how we can quickly recover from a major earthquake um, by assessing and improving the restoration and performance of lifelines. Um, so one of the, the steps that we've been working on since then is getting together with the lifeline providers. This is a list of the different uh, agencies that are involved. Uh, seven of them are city departments. Uh, they are, most all of them are here today, and we really appreciate the help that they provided. I think this is, it's a hard thing for agencies to come and tell you um, what their expected performance is going to be after an earthquake. Uh, it's a hard thing to, to say what they think the goals should be uh, after, after a major event. Um, so we really appreciate that people are stepping forward, and we really think this is going to be important um, to understanding how we work together. I should mention that in 2014, we did complete a Lifelines dependency study that looked at how dependent um, the different providers are upon each other. Uh, as we know, if you don't have electricity, it's hard to run um, you know, your MTA system and so forth. Uh, if you don't have water, it's hard for people to stay in their homes or to stay in, stay at work and so forth. So th those things are, are important. And the, the committee that we put together um, is, has been facing those things. And actually, I should say the interdependency study sort of led to the, the finding about the seawall that the Port of San Francisco um, is managing. And we're really proud that voters also uh, recognize the importance of that with the passage of the bond uh, in November. So the performance goals here, um, I, I sort of mentioned already, but I'll just quickly go through it. it it's really, um, you know, how do we ensure that the public understands what our utilities and how quickly it will take PG&E or our water to come back, to get back up and running. Um, we, we know that if we understand that current performance and how they work together, then we can plan for improved performance um, in the future, we expect that we're going to be meeting with, uh, doing focus groups and meeting with members of the public, members, many of the members here, to talk about their expectations as well. Um, the the outcomes that we're that we're looking to provide are, you know, a set of structured interviews that I'll explain a little bit more later, uh, multi-sector workshops. Uh, again, it, it you can have a fantastic um, system. You know, we could have the MTA that could be all set and ready to go, but if the power isn't there, they're not gonna go. And they have only so much control over that power. 
So those are the types of discussions that we expect to have at these multi-sector multi workshops. Um, and, and the idea is that while it can be hard to compare different types of utilities, uh, we can come up with a common framework that allows that to happen um, and, and then work together. So some of the, the additional outcomes are, you know, looking at, you know, hard and soft strategies, thinking about infrastructure as well as processes and systems, um, policies that the city has and so forth or that the different utility providers have, um, and a pretty, um, what we're striving for is a detailed implementation plan that we can take, and it can be incorporated into the city's 10-year capital plan, um, into our emergency response plan, and those other tools. So here is a set, you know, we had to level set, so we're using the two rather extreme um, examples uh, or scenarios, uh, and we're asking the utilities to, to provide us information on how they would be able to respond to a 7.9 earthquake, similar to what we faced in 06, uh, and a 7.0 Hayward earthquake. Again, we're somewhat unique in that we are in the middle of two rather large uh, earthquake faults. So we're, there's a fair amount of information on both of these scenarios, which we believe gave us you know, a little bit of a head start um, in moving this forward. The approach, uh, some of you may remember Spur in 2009 um, did their, their report on a resilient city that set out performance targets. They actually listed performance targets for utilities. Um, the National Institute of Science and Technology, NIST, followed that up and are actually have put out some of their own performance expectations for utilities, housing, um, and, other, and other types of infrastructure. Uh, and then the University of British Columbia, actually up in Vancouver, um, has put together sort of a framework that we're using, which again enables us to sort of compare different utilities um, through a structured interview process. So we've done uh, 15, all 15 of those interviews have happened over the past six months. Uh, and what's coming from that are restoration timelines, and they're going to look something like this, where the blue line is the current performance, uh, the yellow line is the goal, and how do we, it's a, it, we recognize it's going to be a somewhat of a simplification of these complex systems, but we'll have narrative that goes with it. Um, and by doing that, you know, we'll be able to develop a plan. Here's another uh, example of how you sort of take the structural, uh, structured interview information and then you take sector information, um, you know, on how much we know about, for instance, fire following an earthquake, and we layer those two together to, um, to produce the report and the recommendations. So the, the timeline is here. Um, the green bar there at the top is the cross-sector workshop. Um, we welcome questions that people may have, or uh, this is going to be primarily a place for people to, to be able to have comfortable conversations about their, their different systems and how they work together. Um, following that, we will be producing, you know, an action plan, and the intent is that a year from today or so, we'll, we'll have an implementation plan that we can bring back to this committee with some uh, specific recommendations on not just how our lifelines are performing, but how we can improve their performance. So with that, I will take any questions. Thank you, Brian. So um, we are going a little over our time frame here. Um, the next agenda item is the opportunity for any disaster council member to make an uh, announcement um, or comment as part of the roundtable. 
Do we have any takers? Yes. Mike, Mike. Uh, the Department of Technology and the Department of Emergency Management went after grant funding for satellite Wi-Fi internet trailers to support communications um, and especially applications uh, that rely on communications like WhatsApp. Um, and we've received um, funding for that. So we're going to go, and that is um, multi-county. So we're going to figure out the governance structure, but the short of it is um, you'll hear more about these Wi-Fi satellite internet trailers and this new asset that we have to share among counties. Great. Thanks, Nina. Yeah. I just want to announce the executive directive that the mayor announced uh, earlier this meeting. We didn't have copies earlier. I'll have copies right outside when you leave. Thank you. Anyone else? Um, next, we have general public comments. I have a card for one person who hasn't spoke yet, Co Colleen Kojima. Is she here? Yeah. Uh, may I ask a question or is it just a comment? It's a comment. It's a public comment. Go ahead. Yes, hi. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Colleen Kojima and I used to work at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office uh, and I had served on the evacuation committee there. My concern is uh, if there is a catastrophic uh, meltdown in the atmosphere above the planet um, and we need to evacuate using like a space rocket or uh, some type of, you know, uh, device like that, uh, what department or who is the person that would handle this? Um, would it be the city or the uh, California state? And um, uh, the reason I'm asking is because I have a lot of concerns, uh, you know, regarding citizens aside from uh, government workers being evacuated. Who would I really talk to? Would it be the Department of Emergency Services within the city or would it be uh, within the state, maybe in a, on, you know, the military or the governor's office? Uh, I'm a little curious about who would handle something like that. Um, well, the Department of Emergency Management, we own the, uh, we have an evacuation plan um, based, it, it, our evacuation is scenario based, but um, I'm sure one of our staff could speak to you after the meeting and get a little more detail about what you're looking for. Any other public comment? So thanks everyone for hanging in a little few extra minutes. Appreciate you being here.